Welcome to the Calvary Podcast, a ministry of Calvary Episcopal Church recorded live in Memphis. The Calvary Podcast is weekly sermons, but also conversations, reflections, and provocations about the mystery of God and what it means to be human in the world in need of repair. Roger was a psychologist and a parishioner in our parish back in Little Rock. And one Sunday, he he brought me a document he thought I might find interesting. It was his report on a candidate for ordination from years before, which he'd found in some files he was cleaning out. Lots of you will have taken tests like the Myers-Briggs type indicator, and you may swear by its descriptive and prescriptive powers. You more mystical Jungian types will say the MBTI is a bunch of bunk and insist that the Enneagram is the path to true enlightenment. Well, Roger's report was on something called the Hogan Development Survey, which had raised a couple of bright red flags for the candidate in question. It seems this person scored very low in the dutiful category and in the 90th percentile for one called mischievous. Another had him at the 16th percentile for prudence. Roger knew me pretty well. I loved just hearing there was a measurement for mischievousness somewhere out there in the world. The report went on to say that scoring so abysmally with regards to dutifulness might be a problem for somebody who was about to promise to obey his bishop. And to be more mischievous than 90% of other survey takers, well, this was going to be one to watch. But like any good interpreter of data, Roger considered other factors as well. He noted there wasn't a series of failed relationships or job changes or run-ins with the law which might have confirmed that this undutiful, mischievous person had deep-set issues with authority. He also noted that other measures indicated the candidate was pretty sensitive to social cues, i.e., he cared what other people thought, which seemed to be keeping him pretty well in line. I found this fascinating, just as Roger thought I would, and what he explained more succinctly than I am in this sermon was this. We need to either care about rules or we need to care about what other people think if we're going to function in human communities. One or the other needs to tie us to each other, doesn't it? A person can care relatively little about rules, and she can still get along okay if she's cued into what people around her think is fitting or beautiful or clever. Or one can be dutiful, a dependable rule follower instead of an inveterate rule questioner. And even if you don't give a fig what what other people think, you can also get along fairly well with other humans. But if you don't care about rules, and you don't care about social clues, well, then you're a sociopath, and maybe you shouldn't be a priest as well as a whole long list of other things. All right, maybe you guessed that the report Roger handed me that day was my own. I think it's safe to tell you this now, since after three years at Calvary, it's clear enough that this particular graying 53-year-old dad in spectacles and khaki pants is about the blandest, mischievous person you've ever met. But in his summary paragraph, Roger said that after analyzing the results, he decided to take the test himself, and his scores were almost identical to mine, which is probably why Roger and I got on so well, and and it may be why I got to keep moving through the ordination process at all. 
Have you ever thought about these guardrails that we humans seem to need to keep us in relationship with one another? Free ourselves from rules and social clues, and we're on our way, on our own in the saddest of ways. We are disconnected, alone, probably destructive in large ways or small. But here's a problem the Hogan survey doesn't actually address. Even these ties are not ultimately sufficient either. In fact, Jesus says that if our identity is based entirely on a set of rules or on the opinions of others, we're beating another path to a lonely, self-made hell. The parable of the laborers in the vineyard may be one of Jesus' clearest and most immediately understood, right? I mean, it's not immediately taken to heart but we understood it from the time we were children. The unfairness is over the top. Those slackers who show up at the last hour of work get the same pay as those who've been laboring all day long. Really? This is craziness by the standards of the meritocracy we pretend to believe in. It seems humans are born to compare our lives to some eternal rule or of fairness or to some other person's good or bad fortune. But what the parable makes uncomfortably clear is that the kingdom of heaven is a realm of neither rules nor fairness. It's a realm made entirely of gift and of grace. Hell is what we build out of our obsessions with rules and comparison of our lot with the lots of others, which is a hard truth since we seem to need at least some of such things to stay connected to one another. The fuel this parable burns on is that everybody in it is perfectly happy until they find out what everybody else has been paid. And the vineyard owner seems to want them to uncover his complete lack of interest in fairness. He tells his manager explicitly that when the laborers are to be paid, to begin with the latecomers and go from there on to the first. Let word get out that the last to arrive got a windfall see what it tells us about those who got only what they'd been promised. See what it does to the community of people who were laboring happily together just a few moments ago. As a bit of an aside, but not really, I'll also point out that the currency in the parable is, well, currency. It's about money. Like a lot of the Bible is actually in the early 1970s, way before you could Google such things, a businessman named Howard Dayton decided he'd go count the Bible verses about money or possessions, and he found that there are 2,350 of them. It changed his life. How many verses do you think there are about faith or prayer? About 500. Nearly 40% of Jesus' parables involve money. We've spiritualized this Bible and invented a private form of faith, even as we ignore these forces that are actually pulling our lives apart. It takes no imagination at all to feel the way knowledge of the different levels of pay makes its way from one laborer to another, resentment building, and to know what was it, how a community set to a common task splinters into a bunch of alienated, competing, unhappy individuals. Are you envious because I am generous, says the vineyard owner. 
Every one of us, at one time or another, has to answer, yes, that's precisely the source of our envy. Your generosity, measured in these dollars we're trained to count out so carefully, is why we're miserable. Your grace to all those people feels like a judgment against us. In fact, it's what stirs up judgment within us as well. It can seem like some of Jesus' teachings are about grace and that others are about judgment. But the potentially redeeming truth of this parable is that grace and judgment are actually sewn into a single seamless garment called the kingdom of heaven. The difference in the character of the one who puts it on, isn't it? The presence of grace can be what sets off judgment in our lives. So the question the parable puts to us is not whether we've received a lot of grace or a relative little. The question is what kind of training do our souls need if we're to become people who can receive the gift of our lives for what it is and not let our ancient need for rules and fairness split us apart into enemies and competitors for this vineyard owner's generosity. I suspect different communities in different times and places might need to take up different practices to unlearn the ways of this world and live according to the kingdom of heaven. Surely they all involve practicing the art of receiving, practicing the art of letting go. Letting things go like well, money. Letting it go off into the world more like it is the arbitrary gift of a capricious vineyard owner rather than some hard-earned possession we've gotten for ourselves fair and square, and which establishes how we ought to be thought of by others in the race for even more. I think I saw a small but lovely instance of this letting go recently in a different way. Our vestry wants to give away the park on our corner to our neighborhood in more beautiful and full ways. They want to renovate it in a way that makes safe and open setting for strangers to enjoy, but also for us to inhabit in new ways as this virus has made outdoor spaces more essential to our lives. It's a small thing, but maybe it's not so small. I can see us using that space for an even more mutual and hospitable community breakfast each Sunday morning, and worshiping out there together on Sunday nights, and eating out there together on Wednesdays. And all of these practices could go to work on our hearts, reminding us that the abundant life of the kingdom never arises from hunkering down and protecting what we think is rightfully ours. We see the kingdom when we find ways to relearn what, that we are all gifted workers in the very same thing. When we find ways to put our lives back together by giving them away in a world that's been built The art of receiving? For a Christian community, it begins with this practice we've been separated from for six months. The mending of our separated, competitive, resentful, and lonely hearts begins in the practice of holding out our hands together. And over and over again, receiving the gift of God to the people of God. It is Eucharist trains us in the art of receiving our lives and the lives of those around us as gifts. It is Eucharist that trains us in the ways of grace. We practice reassembling this little corner of a world that's still coming apart 
all the way to his cross. As we learn the ways of the kingdom of heaven, as we practice the art of receiving and the art of letting go. So that maybe one day to the vineyard owner's question, are you envious because I'm generous? Our Eucharistic people would come to answer, yes, but we are starved for another way of being. Deliver us from our obsessions with fairness and status and anything at all but grace. Teach us to receive our lives from your hand so we can turn back to your beloved vineyard and let what we've been given go. We've at least begun to see that your kingdom will not come to us any other way. If you're curious about Calvary Episcopal Church, we are an eclectic bunch of Christian people who don't all think the same thoughts or dress the same way or vote for the same candidates or even believe all the same things about the mystery of God and what it means to be human. But we do believe that we need each other because of our differences, not in spite of them, and that God calls us into unity, not uniformity. Subscribe to the Calvary Podcast at calvarymemphis.org podcast or wherever you get your podcasts. Visit Calvary in person at the corner of 2nd and Adams in the heart of downtown Memphis, Tennessee.